Well, hello and welcome to 2023 in the Capitol Record. I am your host, David Bonson, wishing you all a very happy new year. And we are really excited uh, for what is now our third year we're launching here of the Capitol Record podcast at National Review. We started uh, in the very beginning of 2021. And so the calendar year is always coincident with our uh, podcast calendar as well. And uh, it's fitting, therefore, that as we enter our third year, I bring back a guest for the third time, uh, my good friend Sam Rines of Corbu. And we're going to do something kind of special today. Uh, for those who remember, Sam has been on a couple times talking extensively about energy policy. Um, and we want to talk more about energy as well as we enter the new year. But uh, along with everything else happening in the world right now, from the Fed to uh, recession talk to overall economic expectations, if we're going to go into the new year, uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to have a little discussion about what we are expecting for the new year. And in addition to me kind of picking Sam's brain about such things, he's going to pick mine as well. And I'll ask him some questions, he'll ask me questions, and then at the end of this little discussion, uh, hopefully you'll have a good feel for uh, what each of us are looking at going into the new year. Um, we both share common ground in that we do uh, care deeply about the free enterprise system and for healthy, robust capital markets to drive the aims of that free enterprise system. And of course, both of us being sort of macroeconomic minded, we have strong opinions and look uh, uh, for every opportunity we can to embarrass ourselves uh, by by being wrong on such things. But Sam, welcome back to Capital Record and Happy New Year, my friend. Hey, thank you. Always a pleasure to embarrass myself with you. Yes, uh, there's no one I'd rather embarrass myself with than than you. Um, Sam, you had a good year in 22. Um, I, I benefit immensely from the uh, research that his shop, Corbu, puts out. Uh, Sam's partner, Renee, has been on the podcast a couple times. Renee Ananow is uh, also a dear friend. Um, there's a heavy focus on national security, on foreign policy, on geopolitics. Sam has taken on more of the mantle around energy and monetary policy. Um, you know, it's interesting. I guess if you had said at the beginning of 22 that uh, Putin was going to invade Ukraine on February 24th and that we'd be in a land war in Europe all year long, that you would have thought Renee's side of the house would be the kind of bigger area of import at Corbu last year, yet energy and the Fed still sort of took the headlines, didn't they? It was, it was, a, it was a very strange year, right? Uh, so, you know, you go into 2022 and all the predictions are, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you get a an invasion of Ukraine, a war in Europe and energy markets going nuts and a fed going from zero to call it 4%. And all of a sudden nothing really matters other than a war in Europe and the fed. So it was, it was, it was one of the stranger years I think I've ever been through in terms of the narrative was always wrong and always concentrating on the wrong thing. And you had this giant kind of uh, overlapping thing 
that never really appeared in the narrative. And so you ended up halfway through 2022 with everybody going, are we going to be okay on energy? Are we going to be okay when it comes to the broader picture of everything? And that, that kind of ended up playing into the Fed's hand in terms of, well, listen, we're running at a four plus percent, no matter how you look at it, inflation rate, we've got a very, very low unemployment rate. We're going to go big and we're going to go long. And between the two of them, it caught everyone off guard. So I think between the narrative of where does the Fed go? Where does China, Russia, Ukraine go? Those those two slash three narratives really dominate 2022, and they also will dominate 2023. But do you think that China being connected to everything you just talked about, energy, Russia, Ukraine, global, you know, the Fed, I, I, I think you're right about everything you just said, but I don't know if China is part of the narrative of it yet. I think they're part of the reality of it. Mm-hmm. They're part of the narrative for when guys like you and me and John and Renee are talking. But I'm not sure that the media is viewing it that way. I don't think people are viewing Xi and Putin as an alliance, as a real economic story yet. No, they're not. I mean, they should be. Yeah. But the question is, what's the difference between the narrative that's floating around in mainstream media and what's the narrative that's floating around in real money, real moves, right? And I think... The differential there is really important, right? So, yeah, it's not floating around in, call it, you know, what's going on on, you know, mainstream financial media. But it is, in fact, a narrative that is floating around pretty heavily in real money, you know, real narrative people. And I think that's really what people kind of miss is that when you look at what's going on on the floor – do you really want to be short China into a meeting in the spring between Xi and Putin that Putin on December 30th decided to have an actual readout saying this will be the most politically important event of 2023? I, I don't want to be. And I don't think anybody who has a rational view of markets really actually wants to be short or long into that type of meeting. So to your point, no, no, people, people really aren't incorporating anything other than China's opening long, everything that's, that's a seductive narrative, right? It is a very seductive narrative and, and, one of the things that I loved about your write-up and your outlook for 2023 was you really kind of took a few things to heart. One, you, you took to heart emerging markets are going to be a really interesting thing here. And the U.S. dollar is going to be a part of that. And that was kind of my putback to you is, yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, call it bold up on... EMX China, but I'm bold up on it for very specific reasons. And I'm really curious what you have to say on that front. Yeah, I, I think that um, 
the point of, first of all, for listeners, I'll give a little context. By the time you listeners listen to this podcast, uh, we're, we'll have out or, or we'll be hours away from having out my um, annual white paper I write as a year behind review and year ahead projection. And this year's is, you know, 25 plus pages. Sam has read a preview of it. And um, so we'll try to accompany a link to that in the uh, show notes as well. But we're going to interact on some of the themes that were written about in that in that white paper. Um, and EM, I- emerging markets, is something I brought up for historical context to the fact that if I had said to anybody a year ago or two years ago, um, the reality is that inflation will get to this high of a level and will stay at this high level for this long and oil prices will be above $100 for a sustained period of time. And when they settle, we'll settle around 80, not around 50. Um, It would have been very hard to find a dollar bull. I mean, these are historically incredibly bearish dollar coincidence and yet the dollar uh, rallied against all, basically every developed currency on earth and most emerging currencies and, deve- and, and rallied substantially against yen, pound, and euro. Um, and so my historical look in the white paper is what has happened the last eight, nine, ten times that the dollar has had a meaningful move down to emerging markets and the emerging market equity indices have generally gone up not 10 or 20%, but 40 or 50% in a lot of those cases. We have right now an EM index trading at about 11 times earnings. Uh, actively managed emerging markets equity portfolio is somewhere between 10 and 13 times. We're allegedly about to enter a recession in the United States. We're trading at 17 to 18 times earnings. So you do have a valuation argument for EM. You have a commodity argument for EM. A lot of these EM companies are commodity producing countries and could theoretically be in the midst of a, a cycle that was similar to what we had post.com in the United States, the advent of the BRICS about 20 to 25 years ago, and then a currency headwind because never forget that the formula for your return as a dollar investor in emerging markets is plus or minus EM equity, plus or minus currency, right? And so if your uh, uh, dollar is going down and that currency you're going into is going up, you get points. And if your stocks go up, you're getting points. And uh, so that's the basic leverage of the position. Sam, your question for me is, would I want X China there? And this is where it's more a, a permanent statement about the way we manage money at my firm is we're bottom up people. And so we never want to own China, just like we don't want to own Minnesota, right? We, we are bottom-up guys, and um, I happen to believe that most of China trades on export strength and global cyclicality, and we prefer local domestic markets of local domestic strength. And there's more opportunities for us in other parts of Southeast Asia other parts of South America, other parts of um, even even Africa, um, it, where one wants to be an EM investor. Uh, with China, you still have the uncertainty of Xi, 
um, their internet and and dot com space. Um, it certainly compared to U.S. Fang, got much cheaper, but for good reason in the sense that no one knows what the hell the CEO could go missing for for, for two years. You know, yes. um, exactly. I, you know, we exactly. may or may not like Bezos, but we know where Bezos is. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's my long answer to your your question. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great answer, and it, it's it's a it's a really interesting one based on we we kind of have the same opinion, right? That the U.S. dollar is likely to decline, and that is a tremendous tailwind to a number of EM type investments. And the question is, how exactly do you exploit that without having the geopolitical headwinds that might evolve from here. And I, I do think the way you're thinking about it is really, really interesting. Now, the, the other thing I'd love to ask you, and you know I'm coming at you with this, is how do you see if the Fed evolving over 2023? Because I think you and I are both on the same page and reading a different book all at the same time. Yeah, I think what what you mean by that is believing that the Fed has, um, I think you and I are in agreement that there are certain metrics that the Fed's looking at that are different than what others are looking to. Um, my belief that has been somewhat uh, contrarian is that even if the Fed, it, it, which they already have, this is no longer forward-looking, it's backward-looking that the Fed has gone tighter than many expected, than consensus view was as evidenced in the yield curve, 100%, all of yes. that. Um, I have pushed back more on a narrative of Powell equals Volcker. Or, or uh, and that uh, Powell is no longer in the mold of the Bernanke, Yellen, and even Greenspan idea of a Fed put to risk assets, a Fed commitment to the doctrine of the wealth effect. Um, and so, a plethora of guests I've had on Capital Record, um, and I have debated this sometimes from a vantage point of agreement, sometimes disagreement, sometimes nuance. But my underlying view is that all of these Fed governors are ultimately Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen at heart, meaning they live on planet Earth because of the fear of dramatic deflation, not inflation, that they are all programmed to not allow a depression to happen and that they view the way that they can be judged wrong in history by asset prices. And and so before I answer your question about what the Fed's going to do, let's go back to 22 for a second because think about this, all right? Let's pretend we it's January 22 and we don't know that CPI will stay with the seven handle. We don't know the volatility that's going to exist in the food and energy side of headline inflation and Putin and, and all these other things. Um, we and, and we certainly don't know that the uh, Fed's going to do four consecutive 75-bit hikes, getting the Fed funds rate above 400 basis points. From where it was at the beginning of the year, which I will remind listeners, was zero. It isn't like we got to 425 by 200 last year and 200 this year. They basically got 
300 of this 400 from June to November of this year alone, four different 75 hikes. And if I had said to you, Sam, Fang is going to be down 50% and Bitcoin is going to be down 75% and a lot of the lowest quality aspects of ARC, small cap growth, various forms of uh, work from home, COVID boom stocks, that they're going to be down 70, 80, 90%. And um, then at the end of the year, unemployment would be 3.6%. The S&P would be down 19. The Dow would be down eight. Would you have believed, and we will not be in recession. Would you have believed me that that kind of asset price uh, bubble destruction could take place and that so far the carnage has been so minimal and, and the credit would only be down mid single digits with the government bonds down 15%. So if you told me that in January, no, I, I would have been trying to figure out what size straight jacket to put you in. Yep. Um, and I'm guessing it's a large, um, maybe, maybe, a you know, with a medium, uh, tightening, yeah, right. uh, but I, but I would have been, I would have been trying to figure out, you know, how to put this guy in the loony bin, but come March, I, I was pretty much aligned with that view and in a, in a way where I'm fairly certain everybody figured out that, you know, I, I took a large, uh, and you needed to fasten those things pretty tightly. Yeah. So no, I, I, I do think that there is something to be said about understanding that inflation and the way that we measure it, right? So there's two different things there. There's inflation and there's the way that we measure it. And, uh, you know, call me crazy, but the two things between those two are pretty large, right? Inflation in and of itself, significant problem. The way we measure it is a also a significant problem. And as we enter 2023, I would say inflation is less of a problem than the way we measure it. And that is going to be the story of at least the back half of 2023, if not call it the middle, uh, Q2, Q3, that type of deal. Because we're going to find out that Rent and the way that we measure shelter, that was completely lagging. Everyone knows that. That is not something that is shocking. But I think we're also going to find out that a lot of other things are just like that. So we're going to have a much different profile of inflation in 2023 than we did in 2022. Because other things are distorted in their measurement or other things are lagging in their measurement? Lagging. So I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't ascribe to the things are distorted, yeah. right? I don't think anyone really wants to distort inflation metrics one way or the other. They're just lagging. And Do you, have, have I ever told you my story when I, when I made Sean Hannity mad because he was interviewing me on radio live and he was saying, you know, if we, uh, if we were measuring inflation the way we did in the 80s, we have like 40% inflation. 
and and I said, and I and I'm sure he assumed that you know I'm on board, and I joined the bandwagon of yes, that's right, and everything's terrible, and it's worse, and Biden did this and that, and I said, well, you know, but Sean, the difference is, of course, that back then people were spending this percent of their wallet on food and energy, and now they spend this percent. So the fact that we don't measure the same thing is because we're doing a better job measuring, not because we're trying to help Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush. There's no political thing. We're measuring it because spending percentages are relevant. And and I know no anchor ever wants to be corrected on air. So, you know, I, I, I was respectful, but I don't think he was very happy. But But yeah, so we're not talking about distortion. You and I are on the same page. I don't think anyone's trying to to rig the books to make CPI look worse or better for political reasons, but there's there's lags. The most egregious of which is that the um, shelter index is roughly a third of CPI and that roughly 75% of that third in the owner's equivalent rent metric is looking back at um, the current state of all leases, which includes leases signed a year ago, where only 9.9% is new leases. So that lag we've defined, we know about. I'm pretty sure Jay Powell knows about it too. Yes. But what are the lags you're referring to, X shelter? Yeah, so it's it it's a lot of things, right? So it's the way that I, I think people really underestimate how long and how hard COVID is to measure. Right. COVID was an earthquake and you have a lot of aftershocks. And, you know, you had Omicron this time last year. Everybody kind of wants to forget about that. But we had Omicron last year and a lot of people missed work because of Omicron. This is, you know, it's not me just being a conspiracy theorist. It's me just quoting the numbers. It was a tremendous amount of people. So there is a lag in the way not only that economies begin to recover, but they heal, right? And there's a huge difference there, right? There's a recovery. Everybody knows that the U.S. economy recovered and we recovered rather well and very, very quickly. But what people kind of tend to forget, whether it's for convenience or for their own kind of outlook on the globe, is that COVID comes with aftershocks, and they're very, very significant, right? We had oil prices dip to negative numbers. We had oil prices rip to 120. Now we have China reopening, which is, you know, its own story and something that everybody seems to be overestimating. But you also have the U.S. economy beginning to come to some sort of a median of maybe we don't need to have as much oil as we did pre-COVID, but maybe we do, we don't really know. You're going to continue to have these types of radical shifts underlying the system that people tend to underestimate. And whether it's part-time employment, whether it's wages, which I do not see any evidence of slowing, and that is that is more of a problem than anybody really wants to admit. And you mean that in the or, traditional way of wages, high wages are bad because they hurt profit margins? No, no, no. I think high wages are 
bad because people can buy a lot of stuff that they couldn't before. Right. I, I really don't care about margins, right? Businesses. If, if you can't figure out how to automate, if you can't figure out how to technologically innovate your way to a similar margin with higher wages, I will short you and I will make a fortune. So how do you, right. how do you figure high wages lead to excessive levels of spending right now when all indications are that the savings rate is at lowest levels we've seen in some time and people are starting to tap out the credit card again? Yeah, because, you know, people, people are starting to hit the credit card again. I mean, yes, I will readily accept that. That's the data. But at the same time, if you're getting 9, 10, 12, 15% more than last year, who cares about your savings rate? Well, um, you, you mean uh, for the individual, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as on the macro, I'll, I, the person who yeah, cares I mean, about it is me. But yeah. Yeah. No, no. I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah. Like if, if you're spending, if, right, if you're getting a 15% pay raise and your savings rate on average is 2% versus 4%. You're spending a lot more money and you're very, very happy, which is a very, very big deal versus if the versus if the saving if the savings rate was declining in a in an environment of two percent real growth, three percent nominal, that's that's really concerning. But right now you have a very high nominal growth rate. And you have people making a lot of money and they're spending all of it. So that to me makes the savings rate kind of an interesting data point. So you think that puts upward pressure on, on goods prices? No, I think it's services on services. Everybody bought, everybody bought all the, all the goods. They're done buying goods. Thank you for cutting me off there. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. Right. So everybody caught, everybody bought all the couches and yeah, furniture they needed, TVs, whatever. But what they didn't do was they didn't go out, right? And so as long as they believe, and this is the key with the credit card thing, as long as they believe that they are going to have a wage that is growing at 5 6 7 8% a year, why not run up the credit card? So it's the flip side of the savings rate is, I'm not sure that's a bearish argument. It might actually be a very, very bullish argument that people figured out life is short because of COVID. They're making a lot more money and they might as well go see what they want to see. And that is a very powerful combo to spending a lot of money into the system, creating a very, very weird dynamic that people don't necessarily want to appreciate that you have, you have, a lot of people wanting to go places, wanting to experience things, wanting to go do that checklist that they had. And now they have the opportunity. So I, I feel like there's a little bit of, call it data numbness, that I, I don't necessarily want to incorporate into my system and into the way that I think about the world, but I think it is rather important in 2023 yeah. that people aren't afraid of debt and they're not afraid of going out and they're not afraid of going and running and doing what they always wanted to do. But, but I, I do want to ask you, 
On the growth front, on the growth equity front, how do you think about the pivot that could be underway, right? A very similar pivot to 2001 to 2003 and how that played out over time. How do you think about that as an allocator? The the pivot meaning within monetary policy or you mean within equity um, orientation? All of the above. I think that the um, if I were to believe that there is a certain pivot taking place in the um, ebb and flow of cycles, um, it would be conventionally referred to as the pivot that takes place on average every decade between growth and value. And it, what people generally mean in this sort of indexing of growth and value are companies that we refer to as lower duration stocks, meaning you don't need a lot of time for them to develop and mature their business model. It's already well matured. It's already well baked in. They command a lower valuation. They will experience lower growth, but possibly have higher cash flows in the present tense and most certainly have better balance sheets in the present tense. That gets sort of compartmentalized and segmented by industry marketers into value orientation versus growth, which in an ideal sense just simply means to companies that might have a higher multiple or higher valuation because they genuinely do have higher growth of cash flows, growth of earnings. Um, and in a worse sense will mean they have no growth, but we're calling it a growth stock because we believe they're going to get so much growth in the future. So they're not growing earnings now, but they're growing reputation. And that's a real long duration stock is when you believe that uh, the growth of reputation will lead to growth of revenues, which will eventually lead to margins, which will eventually lead to profits. And history is filled with justifications of that latter um, camp, Amazon being case in point. If one just wanted to poo-poo Amazon in either 1999 in the bubble or in 2002 after the dot-com bubble blew up on the basis of present tense earnings, it would have been a radically bearish argument. But they were legitimately like Google, which went public a couple years later, I think eBay fits in this camp. There were names that were justifiably growth, long-duration stories, and people obviously did very well in those equity returns. My belief is that right now, um, when the rate is not going from 5% to 0%, the federal funds rate, the risk-free rate, the short-term treasury rate, whatever you want to refer to, um, and when you have a more shall we say, um, touchy sense of risk in investor appetite that you will have a secular period, not a one-year period or a one-quarter period, but you will have a sustained period of the market favoring mature business models to more speculative business models. And something you've written a lot about, the stickiness of pricing power, um, it, I would rather own companies that I believe people have to own their products and use their products to survive for the next five years than companies that are um, trendy, popular, cool, hip, etc. So that's the pivot. Um, I'm talking my book to some degree, but we're not a value manager. We don't dislike growth. 
It's just we do like cash flow generation and the sharing of that cash flow because we're dividend growth managers. And so that does tend to line up oftentimes more with value-oriented companies and growth. But that's just a byproduct of what companies are doing with their free cash flow. That, yeah, and, it's, and, it, yeah. it's a product of wanting to make money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, it's it, it's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pump your ego, but you started with uh, your piece with a quote by Minsky, yeah. right? Which is, you know, you boil it down and it's, you know, the longer things go well, you know, the worse it is when things break. And it's really interesting to me when we start talking about growth, when we start talking about energy, when we start talking about Fed, etc. These are things that forever, you know, it was, you know, for those three things, it was one, you just want to own growth, right? Every chance you got, you just upped your case to growth over, over time for the last decade, and you won, right? You always beat the benchmark. Two, energy was always getting cheaper, and it was always going to be cheaper thanks to whether you wanted to blame it on solar, whether you wanted to blame it on wind, or if you really wanted to be real, you could actually cite shale. And then the third point was you're never going to have high interest rates again because the Fed is always going to, and I quote, they're never going to raise rates above 2% again. And I'm quoting myself on that um, as a moron. But the, the interesting part about that is when you break all three of those things, you create the opportunity, one, to reevaluate everything and kind of two, to create wealth going forward if you're willing to have an open mind about it. And I think, you know, exactly to our conversation today, <laughs> you're kind of open to it. But I do, I do kind of want to dig into where you think the – call it the energy space fits into the inflation narrative. And I will say one thing about it. I famously said to my partner at Corbu, Renee, if you get the inflation, if you get the inflation call, right, all, all clients are happy. If you get the inflation call wrong, you get fired. And that's about it. So Sam, here's the fascinating thing about that. Um, I think you've been reading my stuff for a while. Wouldn't you argue, at least in the headline sense, in the short-term sense of things, that I got the inflation call wrong? Because I just had the best year of my career, portfolio-wise. No, we, we, no, beat, we beat the S&P by uh, 25%. Um, I don't know. I think that one's investment methodology could use getting a wrong inflation call to really screw some things up. But that there is also a sense in which the premise being right or wrong around inflation, that it, it opens the door to another path on the decision tree that could then end up vindicating or further vilifying. So in other words, if your call was inflation, Kathy Wood, we're coming back to 0% inflation and the Fed's coming back to zero bound and Bitcoin's going to 500,000 and Snowflake's PE is going back to 200. Well, then you got some premises wrong, but what you got a lot more wrong were your conclusions. Yes. But if your premise was inflation is coming lower in a secular sense, 
and there's enough instability in monetary policy, fiscal policy, and geopolitics to warrant cash flow generative investments, and energy is totally unloved, and you were a sort of generic, dividend-loving, contrarian value guy, well, geez, that was me last year, right? And it worked out pretty darn well, even though one of the backdrops was, I don't buy this, we're going to Paul Volcker thing. So I guess I guess I would just say it's true if you got the inflation call wrong, you could have got a lot more wrong, but there was another pivot point that could have either vindicated or worsened the outlook. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Basically, it was the left tail was very bad. And as long as you didn't completely bet on some sort of inflation pivot from the Fed, you did pretty well if you thought about the world in a holistic way that yeah. wasn't that wasn't binomial, right? That wasn't either or in terms of the Fed's either going to pivot and I'm going to be right, or the Fed's not going to pivot and I'm going to be very wrong. Right? Because if you if you approached it, if you approach 2022 as the Fed is going to pivot and inflation is going to break and tech is going to run. You are in trouble, right? I, yep. You know, it's the difference between figuring out you're on Noah's Ark and figuring out you're touching the Ark of the Covenant, right? You're, and one some, and some real- did that. You're not, you're not talking about a tidal wave in Kansas. There were real people who really Correct. predicted that 70 PEs that came down to 50 PE were now value plays. <laughs> Correct. I mean, it was shocking, right? Shocking. And, and the, the thing is, you put your hand on the Ark of the Covenant, you don't last, yeah. right? I mean, you know this. If you if you do, if you're lucky enough to get on Noah's Ark, you're you're fine. Yeah. I I do think that there is somewhat of a naivete uh, around the notion that the Fed it has your back, right? The Fed doesn't really care about whether or not I am making money in 2022 or 2023. The Fed really cares about its political leanings and its political aspects. Yeah, but are those two things connected? Okay, so don't use 22 as an example because we already talked about how they didn't break anything yet. Yes. When, well, we say, when we say the Fed doesn't care about if we're making money or not, right now, a bunch of people who saw their houses up eight years in a row and then saw it really, really go up for two more years are right now wondering if they're going back to where they were a year ago or two years ago, right? That's not breaking anything. Credit spreads, which at recessionary levels are double what they are right now are right now 250 wider than they were a year ago. I mean, the, the, uh, like back to the, the thing we talked about, you and I being in a straitjacket a year ago, if all those things, if right now the Fed could just make it stop, they could say, okay, we won. Inflation's where we want it. Everything's good. They can't do that. And that, that it, this thing isn't over. And, and even if it were, the cover isn't there. But hypothetically... If we came out of this right now with the worst damage to commercial real estate and credit 
being what we've already seen, and the real carnage was crypto and Peloton, I don't think the Fed cares at all. I mean, if anything, the Fed's going to look at this as a as, victory. Look at what we did for you. Yes. Everyone. That's like, right. We, we just took, I mean, we took tulips out of the That's right. garden. You're welcome. That's right. I mean, it, I mean, to be, to be fair, to be fair to the Fed, I don't really think they've broken anything other than, I mean, you can say they've broken housing, whatever. I, I really, well, oh, oh, let's, I, let's, I, I know, let's invert the question. What if the Fed yeah. funds rate was two fifty right now, not four twenty five, four fifty? Could they crypto broke, still be they, down seventy five? Of course it could. Could Peloton still be down ninety? Could Beyond Meat still be down ninety? Of course it could. I would, I would, I would argue financial markets would be in much worse, much, much worse shape because the Fed would be so far behind the curve that the that the market markets would be anticipating Fed funds at. Seven and a half or eight percent, not peaking this year. So, to your point, to your point, if the Fed hadn't gone to five right now, if the Fed hadn't gone here, markets would be in much, much worse, much worse shape. Simply because they would be anticipating that the Fed had to go much, much further. And there's a there's a really there's an intriguing there's an intriguing point here where. The the Fed has this weird thing. So for a while, I talked about the shadow Fed funds rate. You know where I'm going here. Uh, shadow Fed funds rate. And now the Fed is talking about the proxy funds rate. And it's this thing that kind of takes into account eh, whether it's forward guidance or twos, tens, you know, the U.S. Treasury yields. Uh, Fed funds, et cetera, et cetera, futures, mortgages, kind of toss them all into this bowl and out comes a number. And what's really interesting is that right now that number is 250 basis points, 2.5% ahead of every other number, right? So the Fed knows it's very, very tight relative to the Fed funds rate that's throwing out there. And the really interesting part about that is, it's a cited metric. Like the, the Fed knows this. The Fed's not kind of shocked by the fact that, oh, wow, look what, look what we've done here. It, we're, we're a lot tighter than we thought we were. No, the Fed kind of knows that. And to me, it's very telling in terms of the Fed really wants to not have to be the next Volcker or not be known as having to quash inflation, blah, blah, blah. Except it already has been and kind of already will be. And it's, it's this weird moment where the Fed is looking for, or at least the people on the Fed, are looking for their moment in the sun. And they're kind of figuring out we've, we've got one thing left and we have to kill inflation. If we kill inflation, we'll at least not be known as the people who let it rip. Yeah, see, I, I think that where I have a hard time with the argument is not in that the Fed needs to take credit for killing inflation, but those suggesting that they actually will have killed it. In other words, I believe if the Fed sticks this landing, um, which I do not believe people should bet their life savings against, because to your point, they've already so far gotten much further ahead than 
you would have guessed a year ago or even six months ago. There's been much less damage so far, and they've gotten uh, expectations and financial tightening conditions far tighter than they wanted without breaking things. I mean, you know, they're closer to being able to retreat and start claiming some victories than a lot of people would have guessed based on where Carnage is so far. The people who disagree with me, by the way, are, are commercial real estate developers that are all telling me I can't get loans. And I'm saying, well, I'm sorry, but you got to talk to Sam because he just told us the Fed doesn't care about you. And I agree with you on that 100%. The Fed doesn't care about that. The Fed doesn't care about people whose pro formas require 250 basis points of borrowing cost to make their project work. But where I disagree is that the Fed would not care and would not come back with a Greenspan put if credit spreads were 800 wide, if the S&P was down 35 instead of 20 or 25. There's a threshold of pain where the put is back. And that boom-bust cycle bothers me immensely. It lends itself to severe instability, and it also further deifies the Fed every time um, because you get a lot more uh, fond of your drug dealer when you get more hooked on the drugs. And yeah, I mean, it, they have a stronger drug every time. They do. They do. Yeah. They do. I mean, look at 2008 versus oh. 2020. And look at 2008 versus 2000, right? All, all Greenspan had was that lousy Fed funds rate, which was really only controlled with open market. He wasn't paying interest on reserves, he, right? I mean, they got more creative than those of us who were really critical of the Fed would have guessed they would be. And then 2020, they just went to a next level, next level. And, and, to, and to that point, I mean, you go back and look at what Greenspan said. And of all people, Yellen, and I can't remember what what month it was. Somebody will have to go back and look. But Yellen, of all people, was like, do we really want to go to zero? Do we really want to go to the zero bound? Yeah. And there was a debate on the FOMC as to whether or not they wanted to go to the zero bound. And they decided not to because it was a scary place to be. Yeah. And then you fast forward 10 years, and guess what? We've been at the zero lower bound for the better part of my six-year-old daughter's life. Yeah. Yeah. And I go back to some of the stuff Renee and I were talking about in the midst of March and April of 2020. And I don't believe for a second, either of us were wrong about what the fed would have done. They didn't go to yield curve control only because the forward guidance worked. Yep. Right. It's like yeah. it's like saying, see, we told you now, do I think they'd go to NERP to actual negative interest rate policy there? I don't know, because I don't think that's a matter of the Fed's posture being we don't need to go there. So we won't as much as the Fed has actually said we we believe it to have been counterproductive in history with Europe and Japan and others. I, but again, the point needs to be for people being objective about it. The Fed so far has shown a willingness to do anything, to do yeah. anything, but not more than they think the situation calls for. When, when guys, who was uh, Trump's guy who just got acquitted um, colony capital? Tom Barrick. He was writing letters to, to everyone who would listen, saying you got to bail out 
uh, CMBS back in March of 2020. You remember all this? And he he was getting in front of Mnuchin and he was making the case and he was pretty much right. I mean, that what they were doing was forcing margin calls in the mortgage-backed market and they were providing a bailout to levered loans and to RMBS, but they were leaving CMBS to dry. And and But, you know, Powell didn't bite, right? He said, okay, I think we can... We, he, he got a little friendly with corporate credit. We know what he did in corporate credit. But for the most part, he did what he thought he had to, which was way more than I think he should have. But he didn't, he didn't do more. And, the, and what I would say, and I think Renee would agree, is they didn't need to. But would they have gone to yield curve control? Would they have gone to other levels of alphabet soup facilities Backing municipal bonds, backing more CMBS, Tom Barrick's idea, whatever. Oh, I think they would have. I do. I mean, I mean, maybe, but they didn't have to. They didn't right? have to. They, yeah. So it was. It was when you have pocket aces. Yeah. And you bluff. People fold. That's right. right? Nobody's going to call. Nobody's going to call that. And I think the, to problem, the, Fed's the problem with I have with that, and you, like you, I'm a child of the GFC, and I'm a child of dot com. The problem with that is it was supposed to fix Fannie and Freddie in 07, 08, July of 08. That what was the line? If you have the bazooka, you don't need to use it. And it yeah. didn't. I mean, nothing could fix Fannie and Freddie. I mean, you, you're you, right. you, could have, you're right. you could have done, you literally, I mean, there's no amount of therapy that's going to fix those two. And we knew that on September 9th, 2008, but we didn't know that in July of 2008, right? Or maybe we, maybe we did and we were in denial. But I do, but I do think, to your point, the Fed, the Fed is somewhat willing to do a lot. It is very willing to bluff that it is willing to do everything, and the ability and difficulty of calling that bluff is insane. Because if you're going to stand in front of the Fed and say, "No, you're not going to do that." the Fed is going to steamroll you potentially and your career is done. So I, I do think that you, you have a great point there that, you know, writing letters about CMBS and everything else, that's, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is if the Fed wanted to do it, they could have. Oh yeah. And scared a lot of people away from taking the other side of that trade. And I think that's the underappreciated part is you never want to be in a financial crisis and be short what the Fed can buy. No, and, and, and it's not just that you can lose money. You can go insolvent. Oh, yes. And, and, the, and, and this is where maybe we can wrap it up with this because I think you and I have a similar worldview about a lot of things and a similar perspective on investing and sensibility and not speculation. And I don't want to front run as an investment philosophy. I remember Pimco saying pretty wisely after the crisis, buy everything you think the Fed's about to go buy. That's your investment philosophy coming out of GFC and you're buying agencies and you're buying govies and, and you know, you made money in bonds as the 10 year went from 4% to 1%. But here's the thing. I'm with Judy Shelton on this. I don't think that's the way an economy thrives. I'm with Jim Grant. I don't want the Fed doing that. But as an investor, 
I'll be damned if I'm going to get in their way and go against them just because I don't think they should be doing it. I'm going to get my face ripped off investing that way. And so I guess that to me is the takeaway is how do you balance what you think ought to be with what is? And I think the difference is with what ought to be, you do a podcast and white paper and talk about it and write about it. And with what is, you invest. Those are two different things. Oh, 100%. I mean, so, I mean, you've, I think you read the note where I said, hey, signposts are better than pr- yeah. predictions. Oh, that was a great piece. And, yeah. you know, there was, you know, the entire point there was, uh, I have no idea what the Fed's going to do. I, I, I really don't care, right? It's, it's not, from an investing standpoint, I cannot make a value judgment. I, that is not my place. Um, do I love coming on here and being able to pontificate about it with you? Yes. But can I translate that into something that is worthwhile for investors? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody gives a um, two cents what yeah. I have to say about monetary policy unless I'm setting it. And I'm not. So to your point, uh, I have a I, I have a very real sensibility to the notion that hopefully I'm able to parse through the rhetoric of the Fed in order to get to what the Fed is really doing and not have my own sensibilities, my own presuppositions, initial conditions, etc., permeate that to the detriment of the people who read and invest with me. That, that to me is the number one thing that you have to be in this world. And it is somebody who is thoughtful somebody who is critical and somebody who knows that thoughtful and critical is only important when it comes to what is actually happening. And uh, if there's somebody I respect on that front, it's you. So Thank goodness. Well, thank, thank you for that. Let's let's leave with each of us with making one call. We're going to pretend there's three little uh, bandwidths, three zones of the Fed funds rate, zero to two, two to four, and four to six. Howard Marks wrote a recent piece that I thought was great where he said, we've been living in a zero to two world forever and believing that would be the world forever. We've now gone to a four to six world. And he thinks we're going to be in a two to four world. And that's what I think. Okay, I'm going to give my answer away first. I don't think we're going to stay in a four to six world. And one of my reasons is because we can't. We just simply can't. We can't can't afford it. We can't monetize the debt the way BOJ can. And our federal government is not about to get Calvin Coolidge fiscal discipline. So... Four to six is out because of Herb Stein's principle and zero to two is out because it's too damaging and the zero bound was too scary. And to go back there at this point, um, I think they've kind of said we got away with too much for too long. So I'm predicting we end up in a two to four range by the end of this year. What camp are you in of these three zones, end of the year, and then thereafter? Uh, I would be in the two to four, end of year. 
which do we see zero to two again? And I would say zero to two long run. Yeah, that's I, that's the problem is if you look at it, this is just my opinion here. Do not extrapolate this to Renee, please. Uh, zero to two based on Gen X and boomers were actually much better than we appreciated. Millennials, Gen Z. I think we have a lot to prove in terms of whether or not we can actually grow an economy. Productivity. And if you can't grow an economy, guess what? You're at zero to two. Um, Long-term, you're saying? Long-term. You know I'm with you there. That's Japanification. Yeah. Sam and I did not coordinate our answers. Zero to two long-term is another way of saying Japanification. It's productivity problems. It's... um, uh, immigration, it, it's demographics, it's um, all, all the things you're talking about, um, along with excessive indebtedness. Uh, but for the end of 23, two to four. Two to four. Yeah, 100%. And I was trying to use zero to two as a way to provoke you. Yeah. Uh, it it worked it worked um hey sam thanks so much for being the first guest on capital record in 2023 you know we'll we'll want you back here uh midway through the year to kind of check in on on each of our predictions and calls and perspectives um for those listening i can't speak highly enough about the work that corbu llc does one of the finest Macro research shops on Wall Street, uh, Sam Rines, Renee Ananow, uh, dear friends, great thinkers, uh, great people. Um, Sam, thanks for being a part of Capital Record. Hey, thank you, David. And uh, please do rate us, listen to us, forward, share, all the good things. This is the year in 2023 we want Capital Record to explode in traffic so that people will no longer have to hear garbage as their economic podcast of choice, but instead can hopefully listen to something a bit more uh, intelligible and provocative. That's what we strive to do. Not only be provocative or intelligent, but more importantly, to promote an ideology of human flourishing. That's our goal at Capital Record. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 